You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 6th of September 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. I'd rather be dead in a ditch. It costs a billion pounds a month. It achieves absolutely nothing. What on earth is the point of a further delay? I think it's, it's, it's totally, totally pointless. Many times in the last three years, observers of Brexit have declared this is it. It cannot get any stupider than this. This week has proved them wrong. My guests from Monocle's editorial floor will discuss that and the day's other news, including Italy giving the UK a lesson in strong and stable government. Plus, we'll be looking ahead to the Toronto International Film Festival. You don't listen, do you? You just ask the same questions every week. How's your job? Are you having any negative thoughts? All I have are negative thoughts. And we'll ask if there is something to be said for making travel unnecessarily difficult. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. We are going to start with a reflection on the week's developments in British politics. We will not judge those of our British listeners who may prefer to spend the next six minutes sitting in an empty bathtub in the dark. Whatever Prime Minister Boris Johnson's plan was, the week does not seem to have gone according to it. He has lost every vote he has put before Parliament, has somehow rid his party of its last MPs any sane person liked, including his own brother, made a series of public appearances which would have been much more forgivable if he'd actually been drunk and now finds himself potentially having to call a vote of no confidence in himself in order to get the election he claims he doesn't want. Well, I'm joined by Monocle 24's executive editor, Tom Edwards, and Monocle's culture editor, Chiara Ramella. Uh, Tom, apart from that pithy <laughs> summary uh, it just, I just adumbrated there at the top of the show, how has it all been going? Well, I think I, I rather like the fact that Boris has a hundred percent record uh, in, in, in Parliament this week. Listen, it's been a chaotic, uh, you know, volatile week, even by recent standards. And when tasked with trying to make any sort of sense, I thought it would make. I, I wouldn't bother. It, well, I thought it was expedient <laughs> to at least try and just pick out one or two key moments to try and see how they may. Uh, point the direction it's, of... it's, it's, it's either that or we all just sit here screaming while rocking back and forth. Well, initially, so I, 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 was I, gonna, <laughs> I was going to do that. So the first one I thought would be the, the reaction to uh, Johnson and his cabal booting out the, the, the rebels from that in, initial vote. And it's been quite interesting watching a number of the party grandees and indeed parliamentary grandees from across the spectrum um, weighing in and saying, this is the moment where, you know, Boris really lost the plot. And you're increasingly seeing, I thought the comments of Sir Michael Fallon, who's won such uh, these sort of silver-haired grandees just in the last 24 hours, quite telling. It's the first time I've heard anyone from within the sort of Tory party say, don't forget the Remainers. It was nearly half, and they are also still members of the Tory party. The the debate always was, how can we forget what the public voted Mm. for? All of those Brexiteers. And if you further extend that, demographic to include moderate Brexiteers indeed, if you can have such a thing, i.e. those people who don't want to leave by crashing out, you're talking suddenly about a significant majority, not just of Tory 
voters or sympathisers, but of the of the wider public. So that seemed to betray, I don't know, something of a of a shift. Just this fact that, really, for the first time that I can remember, certainly on the centre right side, somebody saying, "Don't forget about." the people who were being left behind I mean, in, the, in the middle and on the left. They're also forgetting about, not that it was ever the Conservative Party's core demographic, but every voter under the age of 21 who has, of course, not yet been invited to uh, give their verdict on Brexit and whether or not they think it's still a good idea. Well, no doubt. And some fascinating data also out this week, Andrew, about the number of new uh, registered voters. Uh, and, and again, many more than half of those under 34. So you would imagine that most of those people who've uh, reached their sort of voting age through the first what decade and a half are likely to be Remainers, or if not soft soft Brexiteers. So I thought that was quite telling. Uh, the second moment, this was the one when I really thought Boris is in trouble. It wasn't actually the votes lost. It was when his brother Joe left. And it was a, a backstabbing as good as anything Shakespeare ever uh, devised for the stage. Absolutely extraordinary. Um, I'm torn, he said, between family loyalty and the national interest. I mean, there it was, in black and white. He is saying, what my idiot brother, (laughs) reading between the lines, is doing, is bad for for the country. And then you get all these stories emerging about how the whole Johnson clan is, you know, there's this huge schism, this massive uh, infight, sort of internecine conflict of of the best sort. It does occur to me that there would be a measure of karmic justice to be beheld if Boris Johnson was to flame out as Britain's shortest serving Prime Minister and and some years later Joe Johnson arrives in Downing Street and and goes on to be remembered by history as some hybrid of Gladstone, Disraeli, Churchill and Palmerston. Well, Andrew, can I direct you back to, I think it was 2013, somebody said Joe Johnson, absolutely, not just got the metal, he would make a fine, fine Prime Minister. Who said it? Was it you, Tom Edwards? No, it was Boris Johnson. (laughs) (laughs) So this is what I'm saying. It is, uh, I don't know, life imitating art, the great rich tapestry, the merry-go-round of politics, I don't know. But that, that was another critical moment in the week that was. Uh, Kiara, I just want to bring you in at this point as uh, my fellow bewildered observer at this table of of Brit- Well, actually, that was the question I was going to ask. As a, a, a non-British person who lives in this country, uh, do you perceive that you are living amidst an actual national nervous breakdown, or is this basically just the Conservative Party finally eating itself? I think it's it, it's mainly the Conservative Party right now, um, which I I find is is quite an interesting sight to behold because uh, at least from the perspective of an Italian, um, we're much more um, used to seeing left wing parties being cons- completely consumed by internal currents. It's not and unheard of in the United Kingdom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll come, we'll come to that in a moment. <laughs> Fancy that. But it's, I think it's quite interesting that a centre-right party, that at least in the Italian tradition, and I think also the, the British tradition, is finally coming out as having quite so many currents within themselves, so, so much so that there are actual physical schisms happening right now. Uh, did you have a third moment you wanted to point out, well, just Tom? Exactly to that I, point. I, I, am, I may be losing count. No, 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 this is it. Uh, and it kind of speaks to what Kara is saying, in fact, because this is to look more to, well, the left and the rest of the spectrum and also a lot of the regional powers who are playing an interesting game. They've all been calling 
this is whether it's the SNP or Welsh nationalists uh, or Liberal Democrats and, of course, Labour, the key opposition party in Westminster, for an election for as long as any of the current incumbents have been leading those respective parties. Um, they've had the opportunity. Johnson has had two or three punts at getting uh, a, you know, a public vote. They've all said no. And we've seen uh, just on Friday, finally, all of those parties, big old conference call, marshalled by Jeremy Corbyn, the comrade-in-chief, and saying, look, we are not going to agree to any election until after the big uh, EU council meeting later in October. So this essentially kicks an end of October departure, a hard Brexit, a uh, no-deal Brexit into the long grass. They've, they've realised that they can just wait. They're standing with their their their, their jackboots on the throat of, of Boris Johnson. And I think they realise that that actually won't harm their ballot box uh, chances. Now, this is still very hard to call. Would they be better off? Could Jeremy Corbyn be the next prime minister if he had agreed and we had a vote even as soon as the 15th of October? Hard to call, but this rare outbreak of consensus, certainly amongst everyone else other than the Tories and the DUP, um, Super interesting. And that what a way it was to end the week. Uh, indeed so, Tom Edwards and Chiara Ramella. Thank you both. We will be back in just a moment. But first, here is Monocle's Ben Ryland with some of the other stories we're following today. Thanks, Andrew. Zimbabwe's first post-independence leader, Robert Mugabe, has died. He was 95. He was ousted in a military coup in 2017, which ended his three-decade reign. Mugabe was praised in his early years, but the end of his tenure was characterised by devastating economic reforms and human rights abuses. Hong Kong is preparing for widespread demonstrations this weekend, including a plan to block traffic to its international airport. The city's embattled leader, Carrie Lam, has withdrawn the controversial extradition bill that sparked the initial protests, but the move has failed to appease many activists. And Germany's Chancellor Angela Merkel says the trade war between China and the United States affects the whole world and that she hopes the countries will soon be able to resolve their differences. Merkel made the remarks at the start of formal talks with the Chinese leadership in Beijing. That's what's making news. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Ben. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. We're looking at Italy now. Still with me is Monocle's culture editor, Chiara Ramella, and Monocle 24's executive editor, Tom Edwards. Uh, and in Italy, a new government has been formed. And I feel like I say that every week, and I feel like I make that joke every week. But for the moment, at least, Italy finds itself governed by a new coalition comprised primarily of cranky populists, five-star and relatively sensible centre-leftists, the Democratic Party, with the left-wing faction Free and Equal, who are not, as might have been mistakenly believed, a mid-90s Eurovision entry, making up the numbers. <laughs> Giuseppe Conte, an independent, remains prime minister. Um, Chiara, is this likely to last the weekend? It's actually very surprising because in the lead up to the coalition kind of taking off, many people were very sceptical and it was quite hard kind of fought this this balance that was ultimately found between Five Star and, and PD. But Because they're not in general keen on each other, are they? No, they haven't been historically, but now they seem to have found a real strange balance. Maybe it's a kind of a strange honeymoon period, but this this picture that I've got in front of me on the on the front uh, cover of La Repubblica shows them quite happy to be in each other's company. <laughs> it's it's quite strange, but I think there is generally a, 
a sense of positivity surrounding this government. I think the previous uh, coalition was a very populist coalition that went into power to disrupt things and to with a very kind of aggressive agenda. And here, like you know, La Repubblica titles, this is a government to make peace because we've had such a turbulent year where emotions really run very high. And it seems like... I can't like... imagine what that must be like. No, <laughs> figure that. Hey, nowhere in, nowhere in the world feels like that right now. Um, and it just feels like there is the level of rhetoric that's coming out of of the of the mouths of these new ministers is just completely different. It's a, it's a whole another way of communicating. Well, the the fun part about this, of course, is that this new coalition has been brought about essentially because Matteo Salvini, the former Interior Minister and leader of Lega, has completely played himself, hasn't he? He broke up the coalition because he wanted to force an election and he has instead forced himself into opposition. What I'm trying to ascertain is, is this actually as funny as it looks or <laughs> is it possibly actually what he wanted? Oh, no, it's absolutely not what he wanted. So it absolutely so, is as funny as it looks? It's it's absolutely oh, hilarious okay. to watch. It's absolutely hilarious to watch his continuous Facebook uh, live posts as well, because clearly now he's having to pretend that this coalition was orchestrated by the EU and it's all against him and it's all a conspiracy and he would <laughs> never go with the PD. Oh, God, you can see, like, the rage in his eyes. It's absolutely... And because of this decision to, cre- to to cause this crisis, his party has actually dipped in the polls quite a lot. He, I mean, the the most conservative estimates say that he's lost 5%, but the most kind of scathing estimates can see him losing about 7 8% even. That's a lot in a couple of weeks. In in that context then, should we see his replacement as Interior Minister, Luciano Lamorghese, who's an actual immigration specialist? Is that the new coalition having a bit of a laugh at Salvini's expense? That's another excellent, excellent kind of development. So <laughs> not only Lamorghese doesn't... Well, A, she's the former security chief of Milan. So she's a te- she's a technical figure. She's not a political figure. Mm. So that's also kind of making a point about how this, this role needs to be taken seriously and it doesn't need to be politicised. And also, hear this out, does not have a Twitter or a Facebook account. <laughs> Will you believe that? So we won't be able to see what she's having for breakfast. Tom, are you um, are you going to miss as a British person being able to mock Italy for its 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 chaos and its upheaval? Well, Chiara, my deskmate, will tell you that I <laughs> seldom miss an opportunity, and, and there's so many ironies here. Of course, yeah, it was always the go-to. Well, yeah, things may be tough in Westminster, but at least dot dot dot. <laughs> um, but, but there's another thing that's quite interesting, which is that coalition building maybe does deliver uh, a progressive centre aspect politics, which may be actually a bit more productive in terms of getting things done. If you think back to our coalition flotation, Tory and, but, liberal, and of course, liberal, Britain, Britain was always weird in that that, that was unusual. Well, because of first past post, that was that was always viewed as anathema, precisely <laughs> because people would say, "What do you want to be like, Italy?" and have elections every five minutes. Don't forget the offer of the in-out Brexit referendum vote was, by many accounts. Only in the Tory manifesto before that election, in order to be struck out of that uh, manifesto, indeed, so once coalition meetings happen, no, I think there's still a credible case that that is indeed what what Cameron was getting at, rather than fixing this div- divisive issue of the Tory party. So, imagine if the Tories hadn't secured that admittedly modest but outright victory, we had another coalition. 
we wouldn't be in this position. And then we could still be sitting here and I could be deriding <laughs> Chiara for having, the, for having the basket case political system. Instead, the table's very much and painfully turned. A, a, a happy parallel universe that would be. Um, Chiara, we should move on to your other beat, i.e. the culture beat as well. Uh, there has been a mishap uh, in the distribution of the new novel by Margaret Atwood. There, there has indeed. Um, this is quite a funny story because obviously there's huge embargo um, surrounding the, the release of Margaret Atwood's uh, sequel, kind of follow-up from The Handmaid's Tale, The Testaments, due to be released officially on the 10th of September. Now, Amazon's obviously got copies ready to be shipped. Unfortunately, 800 of them were sent out early to some of the customers that had pre-ordered. And that kind of threw the whole embargo situation a bit into chaos. Does any of this matter, though, really? I think it does, because I think there is still an importance to uh, the ritual of, if if you care about this stuff, of going to the bookshop and being the first one to get your hands on an actual copy. And booksellers were, I think, quite rightly upset because... They will now, their customers will now feel that if they had ordered from Amazon, then maybe they would have been the first ones to get their hands on the copy. And if they, if they've heard that some some copies have started being delivered to people, they might come to the shop and be disappointed that they don't have it yet. I, you I, don't I seem convinced. No, I'm I'm missing the uh, whatever it is that you have in a person that makes them want to be the first to get their hands on a particular mass-produced commodity. I always used to think that about you know those those people. Well, let's be honest, men who queue overnight for the first new iPhone upgrade, and you just want to say to them, guys, it'll be in all the shops tomorrow. You could just walk right in and pick one up. Whenever you like. I don't know. What about, you know, grand, grand final tickets? I don't know. Willie Nelson's but, playing a halftime show. But th- those are a finite resource. True. See, there's only going to be so many of those. He's got an answer for everything. I have. <sighs> See, I, I don't know. Clearly, there are people to whom it matters greatly that they have, for example, the new Margaret Atwood novel, 24 Hours Before Anybody Else. But again, where do you go with that boast? Who do you go up to and say, aha, I've got this book that you won't be able to buy for another day and find, and find a person who's going to respond with anything other than, all right. Well, I mean, if you think about it from a very kind of hard cash kind of commercial point of view, there is a lot of interests in the kind of the excerpts of the of the book that had they were kind of syndicated and had to be serialized in newspapers and obviously that kind of breaks that whole point. And if if your That's book That's an annoyingly reasonable point. Unfortunately, mm. and if your book were to be serialized and then suddenly some copies <laughs> exca- escaped loose, you know, you won't be very pleased about that. There's, there's, there's no need to laugh at the very thought of my book being serialised. I, I will have you know, it has happened. It has that has literally in happened uh, in, in several. In fact, the Geelong Advertiser uh, did run an excerpt. So did the Herald Sun in Melbourne. Uh, book is available in all good stores. I was waiting for him to say, <laughs> and, and lo, it came to pass. No, but I do think this. I think it, because in this day and age, if you allow me the the, the kind of the expression, um. Very little feels like there is a need to pay for it, culturally speaking. You know, we are able to access everything kind of online. And we. I think we have gotten into the habit of thinking that everything must be available immediately all the mm. time. And so we don't have the patience to wait for something to be released. If we know that it's coming in two weeks' time, why should I wait? I want to pre-order it on Amazon now. I think there is something to be said about 
the wait and the savouring the moment and the 10th of September is this big occasion and everyone's going to be talking about it there and then because that's when it happens. Chiara Ramella and Tom Edwards, thank you both for joining me. You're listening to Monocle's Houseview. We're off to Toronto next. Our very own Monocle Library is growing into a robust collection of well-turned-out titles. For an in-depth look into our core theme of quality of life, why not delve into our first-ever book, The Monocle Guide to Better Living? For any would-be business leaders, entrepreneurs, or even established companies in search of fresh ideas, there's The Monocle Guide to Good Business. In How to Make a Nation, A Monocle Guide, we look at the small and the big things that can help make our nations work better. And in the Monocle Guide to Drinking and Dining, we bypass the foam and the fuss to uncover the makings of a truly great meal. Monocle's handsome books are published by our friends at Gestalten in Berlin and offer a world of new experiences between the covers. So spruce up your shelves today and buy some of our titles online at monocle.com or from any good bookstore. You're listening to Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. The Toronto International Film Festival is in the process of kick-off, and among the attendees is Monocle's Toronto Bureau Chief, Thomas Lewis, and Thomas joins me now. Uh, Thomas, what have you been seeing or are planning going to see? Well, it's only just begun, so I haven't got my sort of popcorn out just yet, Andrew, but I will be doing so over the coming days. It's really kind of a magical time of year here in Toronto, the Toronto International Film Festival. I think what, you know, the festival itself, but also Torontonians more broadly think about TIFF is that it really is a sort of festival for the city itself. It isn't just about the private screenings. It isn't just about the red carpet. All of those things are great fun, of course. But it is about getting bums on seats and going to see films and buying tickets uh, to go and be among the first in the world uh, quite often to see to see these films. So there's a real festive mood in the air, and I'm hoping to soak up some of that over the course of the festival over the coming days. So most anticipated, then, would be what? Well, there are lots of big sort of blockbusters waiting to happen, if you like, in the schedules uh, this year. I'd say the one that's piqued my interest most is Joker. It's getting its North American premiere uh, here at TIFF on Monday. That, of course, is the origin tale of one of cinema's most compelling villains, the Joker of Batman fame, of course, Andrew. That's starring Joaquin Phoenix, uh, and he is getting a lot of sort of Oscar talk around this role. Uh, It was very well received in Venice, and the excitement for that uh, will be pretty big here in Toronto too when it premieres on Monday night. I think we can hear a little taste of Joker that's directed by Todd Phillips now, Andrew. You don't listen, to you? You just ask the same questions every week. How's your job? Are you having any negative thoughts? All I have are negative thoughts. A clip there from Joker, one of the expected highlights of the Toronto International Film Festival. Uh, Thomas, it is, of course, also an incredibly prestigious showcase for uh, homegrown cinematic offerings. So if we're looking at Canada's own contributions to uh, TIFF, what are people getting most excited about? 
Yes, well, TIFF itself has really tried to sort of boost its, you know, credentials as a showcase for Canadian film as well. Of course, both cities like Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, Calgary, even, they're becoming more and more prominent in filmmaking worldwide with, you know, more and more big Hollywood blockbusters, for example, having been filmed there uh, over the past few years. But in terms of films that are made in Canada and that have Canadian content, over the past three years or so, TIFF has really tried to put the spotlight on them. I'd say the film that is getting the most buzz is a film directed by a director called Kazik Radwanski, uh, and that's Anne at 13,000 Feet. Now, the big talking point of this film is the performance by the leading actress in it. That's Toronto's own Dera Campbell. She apparently gives an absolutely heart-wrenching performance uh, portrayal of a daycare worker who is facing various challenges in both her professional and her private life and is this kind of allegory for how a person on their own can deal with notions of vertigo both sort of in a literal sense but also in a more metaphorical one too. So that's the one and at 13,000 feet, that's the big Canadian film um, that lots of people would be looking out for this year. Derek Campbell I should note won the Toronto Rising Star Award at TIFF back in 2015 so she really is a star on the rise herself too. And finally, and just quickly, along to one I know I'm quite excited about seeing whenever it gets here is Incitement. Yes, absolutely. This is a dramatisation told from the vantage point uh, of the assassin uh, who killed the Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin back in 1995. This is getting a lot of buzz here too. There are, of course, every year huge selection of international films uh, shown here at TIFF. Uh, the director of Incitement is Yaron Zilberman. He's the American-Israeli director. I think what uh, might be interesting about the timing of, of this film being made is, of course, you know, Know, he's unpicking the climate, if you like, in which the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin took place. Uh, without having seen the film, it's hard to draw the parallel directly, and I'd be wary to do so. But I suppose if you look at the way that many political figures in in the in in leadership roles in Israel at the moment are banking very hard to the it seems the far right of the political spectrum, uh, perhaps there's a cautionary tale of sorts he tr he's trying to tell through this dramatization of the events. Back Back in 1995. Thank you, Thomas, at our Toronto Bureau Chief, Thomas Lewis there. Finally, on the show today, we are talking about transport and the best way to go across country. And the reason we're doing that is because Monuel's Daniel Bache thinks getting the train or driving a car is just too easy, to the extent that by way of proving this point, he recently cycled from London to Manchester, about 200 miles. Uh, Daniel, we should make clear, first of all, that you didn't do this just to make some obtuse point or as part of some arcane situationist prank. You were raising money for a very good cause, which you are now welcome to plug. Yes, thank you, Andrew. It was uh, last Sunday, an annual charity ride for Ambitious About Autism. They run a fantastic school uh, in London called the Treehouse, uh, which supports uh, young children. I, Andrew, am very lucky to ride my bike every day, and I don't take that for granted. And I am really in awe of this charity and what they do uh, to give people a hand up in life and uh, a better shot at uh, getting a job, getting an education, and uh, was really um, enamored by the work they're doing. They do this They do this ride every year. Uh, it's it's totally insane, I know. Uh, <laughs> As you now know for <laughs> yeah, a fact. It's, it's really hard. But basically, the first guest I ever had on The Entrepreneurs when I took over that show 
his son has severe autism. He is the founder of a very prominent cycling um, label, and he basically challenged me to do the ride. Last year, I couldn't do it. I had prior obligations. I keep seeing him around town or out on rides, and every it just time, gets embarrassing, right? yeah, he keeps he says you're fit, you have to do this, and uh, and so I did it. I finally signed up. Uh, you had to raise 750 pounds. I uh, very uh, grateful that I've been able to raise a thousand pounds and have now completed the ride, so I can finally uh, put my feet up and not worry about it. It was very hard. Uh, and the name of the charity, one more time, is Ambitious About Autism. I actually have a fundraising page. I can I can shout it out. It's uh, justgiving.com/fundraising/daniel-bach. Or just shoot me an email, db at monocle.com, and I can tell you all about it. Uh, I did want to ask about the journey itself, which was hard work. How long did it take in total? So it took 14 hours on the bike, 16 hours in total, because we stopped for lunch and uh, ice cream and all, all kinds of good stuff. <laughs> so we started at midnight, which was really disorienting, to be honest. I, I, I did decided not to change sort of my body clock and my sleep schedule. I'm up early a lot for radio in any case and go out for early morning rides before coming into Midori House. So I said, I'm not going to screw that up. I'm just going to, on Saturday morning, I'll sleep until whenever I get up and then I'll just enjoy a relaxing day. I'll have a nice nap. I'll go up to the starting line in North London and then we'll, we'll head out. It was about 75 of us. Uh, didn't happen. No nap. Uh, it was total panic getting up there. And uh, we started and, and, and basically rode until sunrise and, and had breakfast. And we were out in, in the countryside. Absolutely beautiful. The toughest part was getting to um, the Peak District, which was about 200K like clue, in. Clue in the name there, Daniel. Yeah. Sorry, 200 miles <laughs> in. It was 220 miles in total. And uh, had to go over the Peak District in headwind and rain. And then we descended into, into Macclesfield and... On uh, towards Manchester, but uh, a fantastic event, fantastic charity, and uh, it was uh, it was fun. It was great. But the, the key question is: Did you enjoy the journey more because it was more difficult than it needed to be? Because I, I'm not a cyclist at all, uh, but I am a big fan of the the pointless long walk. Mm. Uh, I, I have done those in a couple of places, like a, a solid twelve to fourteen hours. Um, my favourite one I ever did being from one the south side of the Dingle Peninsula. In the west of Ireland to the north side. So I've always got one walk I did that I can actually look at on a map of the world and mm. say, I've done that. I've been from there to there on foot in a day. That's not as hard as riding a bike for 14 hours. It is, in fact, a perfectly agreeable amble through some of the most glorious countryside on earth. So I'm not comparing them. But I enjoyed that far more than I would have enjoyed it going in a, a well, a bus or a taxi would have been the only option in that part of the world. Yeah, let's let's be clear. It's it's not a, a fine line between pleasure and, and masochism. <laughs> it's, it's it's a really big challenge. I mean, I love to go out just for for short morning coffee rides. Let's call it, uh, you know, a little bit of a challenge. Get your heart rate going. Um, but this was different. I think it was more of a mental challenge, to be honest. And there are I used to run marathons, and there are people that, which is very hard in itself, extremely hard. But it seems for some people there's a slippery slope between going extreme and becoming becoming some ultra marathon or running across the Sahara or doing this event called the GB Duro, which which is the, you know, Land's End to John O'Groats, that famous, famous one, uh, doing it on a bike all off-road. So I feel like that is craziness. I'm sort of just somewhere in the middle, but it, it sounds nuts to regular people. Let's, uh, let's just... Again, be clear that this was not something I would do every weekend. <laughs> you, you don't perceive yourself on a slippery slope to 
doing anything like that. No, I would do like a I would do a bike pack. I would do you know ride. The, I really want to do the North Coast 500 in Scotland. So basically, let, let's like something manageable, 150 to 200 kilometers a day. You know, camp or have a nice B and B where you can put your feet up and actually enjoy it. It's it'd be a long day out there, but if you did it with friends, it would be great. I like the idea. I really like the idea, and, and probably the reason I got through this ride, I love the idea of point uh, to point and not a loop. So I think I got through it mentally by breaking it up into chunks. Uh, and not thinking about, you know, you got to come back on yourself or go through something you've already seen, like running around a track or something. This was, uh, you know, there's a destination and you can will your body and will your mind mm. to get there, but then you collapse at the end. It's a total disaster. Daniel Bache, <laughs> thank you for joining us with that that motivating message there. Uh, do head to Daniel's Just Giving page. You can rewind the podcast, the address he mentioned earlier, um, and do donate to the Ambitious About Autism Christmas Appeal. Uh, that is all we have time for today. Monocle's House View was produced by Tom Hall and Bill Lutie. Our studio manager was May Lee Evans. Coming up at 20 a brand new edition of The Menu with Marcus Sippy. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. <laughs>